Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Judah and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they've rejected the law of the Lord and have kept not his statutes, but their lies have led them astray, those after which their fathers walked. So I will send a fire upon Judah and it shall devour the strongholds of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted. A man and his father go into the same girl so that my holy name is profaned. They lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge and in the house of their God they drink the wine of those who have been fined. Yet it was I who destroyed the Amorite before them whose height was like the height of the cedars and who was as strong as the oaks. I destroyed his, his fruit above and his roots beneath. Also it was I who brought you up out of the land of Egypt and led you forty years in the wilderness to possess the land of the Amorite. And I raised up some of your sons for prophets and some of your young men for Nazarites. Is it not indeed so, O people of Israel, declares the Lord? But you made the Nazarites drink wine and commanded the prophets, saying, You shall not prophesy. Behold, I will press you down in your place as a cart full of sheaves presses down. Flight shall perish from the swift, and the strong shall not retain his strength, nor shall the mighty save his life. He who handles the bow shall not stand, and he who is swift of foot shall not save himself, nor shall he who rides the horse save his life. And he who is stout of heart among the mighty shall flee naked away in that day, declares the Lord. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Amos is the shepherd of Tekoa, a small village in Judah who is sent to be God's prosecuting attorney against both Judah and Israel. Mostly Israel, but Judah won't be off the hook. And last week we saw that Amos delivers oracles against the nations, which were prophecies against all of the countries surrounding Israel and Judah. But then he switches and turns. And this week we see that Judah and Israel are not off the hook, but are condemned for their sin, for their lack of faithfulness. Anytime we come to a passage that is about judgment of God's people, about God saying, you have not upheld your end of the covenant, I'm holding you accountable, we have to ask ourselves, are these accusations fitting for us? Do we fall under this line of critique or this line of judgment as a result of our own covenant unfaithfulness? And that's the question before us today. We need to understand what Amos is saying to both Judah and to Israel. Uh, Amos will make three charges. We'll consider each of those charges, and then he's going to levy God's punishment, which we'll consider after the charges. So let's consider the first charge, which is against Judah. If you look at verse 4, you see that Amos charges that Judah had rejected the law of the Lord. They had stopped keeping the statutes of God. If you keep looking, why did Judah decide to move away from God's law? It says that they had told themselves lies that had led them astray. In other words, Judah had adopted stories, false narratives, that made it seem reasonable or understandable or logical to move away from God. 
A lie is always helpful when we want to live in a way that is contrary to God's statutes. Know this as well, that whenever we talk about believing a lie and moving away from God, you're always moving toward the worship of something else. As someone, as beings created in God's image for his worship, you cannot decide to move away from the worship of the living God and not be drawn into the worship of something else. That's just not possible for a human being. So what are we talking about when we say that God's people had told themselves lies that in essence enabled their sin? Well, an easy example would be to think of Israel as they come into the wilderness out of Egypt. They're running around, they get frustrated with God's leadership. They start to say, yeah, we're not really loving walking around in the desert. And so they begin to recast their experience in Egypt. Egypt wasn't so bad. Slavery wasn't that bad. They had onions. Perhaps we should go back. Or if you fast forward a little bit in that story, Moses is up on Mount Sinai receiving the law, and he's tarried a long time. He's kind of vanished. And the people say, well, what's going on? They decide he's probably dead. And if the prophet of the God is dead, that God can't be very worthwhile. So let's fashion a new God who will lead us and serve our purposes. And you have the birth of the golden calf. You see the ways in which God's people were tempted to tell stories that endorsed their sin. Lies that enabled their own self-deceit. What lies do you tell yourself that enables your sin or makes your sin seem quite reasonable? I think this phenomenon is much more insidious than we sometimes give it credit for. And one example that I'd like you to at least ponder is uh, something like kids' sports today in our culture. The September 4th issue of Time magazine has an extended article on the nature of children's sport in our culture and notes that uh, the time of little leagues, soccer leagues, and church basketball squads that we've known in the past is largely done. Their participation is down 20% just since the year 2000. Parents now spend more uh, routinely, more than 10% of their income in registration fees, travel, camps, and equipment. Massive hours on the road, steep prices have become the norm, so the article goes on to say. I've had neighbors, personally, right, that were spending uh, north of $20,000 a year to participate in a hockey program. Stories of families going into debt for such opportunities has become routine. Now, if I haven't gotten your attention yet, realize that the youth sports market now, the industry, is a $15.3 billion industry, which for the 20th century was largely unheard of. Nobody was making money on kids' sports. This is a new phenomenon uh, compared to what happened in the 20th century. And it has grown 55% since 2010. What's fascinating about this, oddly, is that uh, research demonstrably shows, without any question, that the earlier a child specializes in a particular sport, the higher rate of injury, burnout, and depression. Yet families are pouring more and more of their resources, more and more of their entire lives, more and more of who they are in these activities. So I think a fair question is why? why? Why have we made this decisive turn as a culture to invest so, so dramatically? Well, I think part of the answer is, you know, as we, as a culture, move away from God, as we say the default position in America now is, maybe there's a God, maybe there's not. I don't really know. It doesn't affect my life. Well, suddenly, everything in the years 
that you have on this earth become dramatically more important. Right? If your greatest experiences, if your most significant uh, aspects of your life are going to be on this side of glory, then it actually starts to make sense to pour everything you have into achievements in this world. Now, that's what we see happening culturally, and I don't know necessarily that any of you are walking down that path, but I would assert to you that uh, this is a lie, right? If there is no God, what we do in this world matters the most, and as a result, we start to live for that and to worship it. And even if we wouldn't articulate, articulate it that way, I think we do feel the pressure of, oh, these other kids are doing better. I have to participate at this level in order to keep up and for my child to compete. And so the lies of the culture right, begin to affect us and the decisions that we make in our households and how we approach worship. And the terrible part about this, in my opinion, is not, I don't have anything against sports, Sports were a big part of my life, and I love sports, but when sports or anything else, right, we could talk about any children's activity, comes to compete with church, and then church loses, what are we actually teaching our kids? How are we not raising them to say, oh, well, the worship of the living God comes second when there's a conflict with anything in our schedule. We had some parents of older children, and maybe if you have young children, you need to spend particular time thinking this through, they come in and they say, I'm really distraught. My older kids are not really walking with God. They see their faith as somewhat negotiable. And I said, Frank, oh, I wonder where they learned that. Have you not spent the last 18 years teaching them that it comes second to these other priorities? How would you expect them to live? Lies all around us. Lies that would convince us that, yeah, moving away from God to a certain degree is okay. And this is the first charge leveled at Judah. You've told yourself lies that enable your sin, that excuse your behavior. God is not fooled. Now, this leads us to the second charge, where Amos pivots and he turns from Judah to Israel, which is the main recipient of the prophecy. And in verses 6 through 8, you see uh, that Amos will list a number of sins of which Israel is guilty. Now, what's very interesting about this list of sins is that they are all unified by a common theme. And that common theme is the oppression of the poor. This is what Amos, remember we said that Israel is in a period of unrivaled, almost unrivaled affluence. They've never been richer except for under David and Solomon. And they'll never be as rich as they are at this period again. And in the midst of this affluence, they've made decisions to live in such a way that consumes the poor. Their decisions are oriented around uh, living life to the fullest in a very secular sort of way. Now, the law made it clear that Israel was responsible to care for the poor. In fact, the Mosaic law is outstanding amongst ancient law codes in terms of its priority for the poor and care for the poor. So for, to, leave, to not care for the poor is not only an oversight, it is a direct act of disobedience uh, when we consider God's law. Right? Leviticus 25, if you want to look, is an actual very beautiful passage about the responsibility that God's people have for one another to care for each other in need. But if we survey these sins of Israel very quickly, you can read through them with me. They sold the righteous 
for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. They trampled the head of the poor into the dust and turned aside the way of the afflicted. A man and his father had the same girl. Now, first and foremost, that is a sin about, it's about uh, taking advantage and oppressing a slave position. Right? It's really, it's intended to be uh, first an, an economic sin before it is any other kind of sin. They lay themselves down at every altar on garments taken from others. They drink the wine of those who have been fined. Now, those last two might seem a little quirky because you have to understand the context of what is being said to understand uh, Amos' words. In the first regard, this act of laying the garments of others down at every altar. Now, at this time in the ancient world, uh, in Israel, the law even provides for this. If someone owes you money, you have permission to take their outer garments. But you're supposed to return their outer garments every night because your outer garments are also your bedding. They're your covers, right, for sleeping. What's happening is that rich people are taking these, right? They've loaned money. People owe them money. They take the outer garments, but they're not returning them. What are they doing? They're using them, right, as extra bedding at the temple. Now, you have to keep that in your mind while you consider the uh, aspect of wine. You could be fined for any number of things uh, for in the Old Testament, right, as Israel. You'd go before the judge, you would be sentenced, you had to pay a fine. Sometimes the fine was collected in a commodity, such as wine. And in this case, the judges are taking the wine and consuming it at the temple. So the basic picture that's being given here is that uh, there's something going on at the temple that requires a lot of wine and a lot of extra blankets. Okay? There's a lot of hanky-panky going on at the temple. All right? Boys and girls... Grown-ups are sharing kisses in ways that they shouldn't, in ways that dishonor God. Right? Now, what's happened is Israel at this time is surrounded by uh, fertility cults, other religions worshiping other gods that practice their religion this way. And what Israel has decided to do is say, yes, we still worship Yahweh, but we're going to borrow some new worship practices. We're going to draw near to him in this new way that's a lot more fun and a lot more exciting, right? And so their religion is becoming corrupted by the decisions that they're making and borrowing from the culture that is around them. We call this syncretism, right? When our practice, our faithful practice, is corrupted by that which is around us and corrupts our true practice in worship. And what is fascinating to me about this is what Amos wants to focus on is that as a result of this, not only is worship corrupted, but the poor are devoured. Because you've gone down this road of sin, you no longer care for your brothers in need, and you will simply consume them. You know, you will take advantage of them, and you're not paying attention, and they are the ones that are suffering as a result of your sin. I've really had to wrestle with Amos and his words about affluence. And the ways in which do I participate in the oppression of the poor? You bet I do. You know, uh, one of the things I've had to wrestle with is uh, some of you know that a number of years ago, Jennifer and I received an inheritance from Jennifer's grandparents. And we sought counsel on how to exercise that inheritance, and we sought to give generously, but we also sought to save and invest wisely. And we received counsel at the time. Said, because you're a minister, right, ministers get a tax break on housing. 
right? It's, a, it's basically when parsonages went away, right, the house on the church property that the minister lived, there was a, a part of the tax code created where we get a break on housing. So a house is a particularly good investment for a minister. So we started looking and we found a short sale that was very undervalued. And from an investment perspective, it was really in some ways a no-brainer. And it's been an outstanding investment. But here's the catch. You get a bigger house, there's more maintenance. And it's not just money, it's time. You get a bigger yard, you spend a lot more time keeping that yard under control. So all of a sudden, as a result of that decision, right, from an investment perspective, I can say this makes complete sense. But am I just fabricating a lie to have something that I want? When my time and energy is sapped from the kingdom in ways that it could be invested more so, and now I live in a community that spends a crazy amount of time making sure poor people can't get into it. Am I oppressing the poor? Yeah, in ways I am. And for all of us, right? For the ways in which we buy, some of you buy the biggest house that you can or the nicest car that you can or you, know, you, you, you leverage yourselves to the fullest extent that you can when there's real poverty in the world that we could do something about. And in that way, are we not oppressing the poor? Are we not living in our affluence and celebrating it in ways that compromise our integrity, much like it did for Israel? All right. On to charge three, as if we haven't had enough yet this morning. In verses 9 through 11, uh, God actually takes a break, and he reminds Israel what he has done for them. He says, listen, don't forget, I'm the one that defeated the Amorites, which were the people who are living, were living where you are living now. I'm the God who brought you up out of Egypt and provided for you. And the message is essentially, this is how you are treating me. You've forgotten the one who has been strong on your behalf. Look at verse 12 with me. Israel's not been remembering what God has done, but not only that, they've been actively making sure that they can't remember. Verse 12, it says, But you made the Nazarites drink wine and commanded the prophets, saying, You shall not prophesy. Okay, what is Israel doing? The Nazarites were especially a holy group of men who were set apart for the worship of God. Think of Samson, and even though Samson didn't do very well. But you, you don't let any razor touch your hair. You don't drink any strong drink, no alcohol. Right? You're set aside for God's special purposes. It was, it was a very special commitment. And what are they doing? We don't want anyone especially set apart for God's purposes. So we're going to make you drink wine so that your vows are broken and you're no longer a faithful Nazarite. And these prophets who keep reminding us of God's word, who speak the truth to us, let's make them silent. If we don't hear God's word, we can't be convicted. And if we can't be convicted, then we can do whatever we want and keep going down the path that we're on. Now, the voice of God doesn't come to us through a prophet anymore. It comes through us to us through the living word of God, which means that As often as we open God's word, we can hear from him. And as often as we keep it closed, we silence the voices of the prophets, just like Israel did. Let me ask you to think about this in a little bit different way this morning, a way that I was challenged to think about it this way. Apple uh, now tells us that the average person consults their phone 80 times per day, which results in 30,000 times per year. In a 2015 survey, some of you are grimacing, which is 
Yep, we can all grimace together. In a 2015 Gallup survey, more than half of iPhone users said that they could not imagine life without the device. Now, take that, right, our addiction to our phones and to constantly checking them for all sorts of information with the data that's beginning to emerge on what phones are doing to us, right? Now, remember, phones are not that old, right? Smartphones are a pretty recent technological advancement. But people have been studying it since they started. But now there's enough data to start to produce some interesting insights. When a person hears a phone beep or buzz, whether or not it's theirs, the person's focus wavers and their work becomes sloppier. When a person hears their iPhone ring and cannot answer it, the person's blood pressure spikes and their problem-solving skills decline. Repeated tests show that students without a phone perform much higher than students who have access to their phone. So dozens and dozens of tests, and they basically take a big group of students, and they say one group doesn't get a phone at all, one group has to put their phone in their pocket or their bag, and one group puts their phone on their desk. Over and over again, uh, the results have been exactly the same. The group without the phone performs the best, the group with the phone on the desk performs the worst. Now remember, they're not answering it. They're not even receiving anything. It is simply the presence of the phone that is a psychological distraction and keeps you less focused on the task at hand. Students show that, studies show that people who have a conversation without a phone present enjoy a richer time together than when people converse with a phone uh, present. And if, if all that wasn't enough, uh, there is what is now called the Google effect, which essentially means that we're getting, in some ways, dumber. Now, you all experience the Google effect, uh, and a very simple way to understand it is to simply say, what's somebody's phone number? And you have no idea, right? If you're, if you're as old as I am or older, you remember a day where you knew lots of phone numbers. You had to, because you had to dial them. I don't, I don't know Jennifer's phone number. I'm not kidding you. I don't know it, right? Because it's in my smartphone. So the Google effect is a study where you now... If you believe that information or data is going to be contained in a device, you actually spend much less energy and time remembering it. You don't hold it in your brain. Uh, So again, study after study has shown this. But now what they're starting to realize is uh, this is having unintended consequences because how do we think and process information if we don't actually have the information within us? Right? We're changing. And as a result of that, people are starting to say this may not be that good. Now, all of that's kind of fascinating and fun to talk about. My point is really only this. On average this week, just on average, you might be below average, but you're going to pick up your phone 80 times a day. I don't do that, but right. let's just say, for the sake of argument, 80 times a day. 80 times a day, you're going to consult it for some piece of information. Now, how many times a day do you pick up God's Word? The point is the degree that you will give yourself over to other sources of information or to consult some piece of technology that is thrilling and exciting, right? Is the degree that you may move away from something that is vastly more important. If you don't open God's word, you silence the voice of the prophets and you will feel far more liberated to engage whatever you want to engage just like Israel did. By silencing the voice of the prophets, they can move in a direction that they uh, want to move in. As we conclude, these, these three charges, we realize that God is going to fiercely punish Israel and Judah. 
When we read, again, a passage about punishment for charges that are laid down, are these things true of us? The people of God always have a tremendous propensity to excuse themselves. Right here we, we see the oracles of the nations, and then Amos turns to Israel and Judah, by which they would have been shocked and said, wait a minute, you're including us in those nations outside the covenant? And another stunning picture of this, this terrible tendency we have to excuse ourselves is Luke 4, when Jesus shows up on the scene and he reads from the Isaiah scroll. And, uh, you know, it, it speaks of the coming of the Messiah and the, the goodness that will be done in the Messiah's ministry. And Jesus says, today this has been fulfilled in your hearing. And it says of the people, everyone thought really highly of him. Everyone was in awe of their gracious words. And then Jesus went on to say, yeah, well, I'm not sure you really get it. Let's remember that during the time of Elijah, there were many widows, but he was only sent to one that was outside Israel, right? The widow of Zarephath. He says, during the time of Elisha, there were many Israelites struggling with leprosy, but Elisha was only sent to heal Naaman the Syrian, another outsider. And what Jesus is saying both is that God's grace is going to extend beyond Israel, but he's also pointing up that they have a tremendous capacity of excusing themselves from the word of God when it accuses. And so after he reminds them that God's grace goes to the outsider and they're simply not because they're chosen. They move from being awed by his words to getting ready. They says they were filled with wrath and they wanted to throw him off the edge of a cliff. Right? They proceed to try to kill him. The charges against Israel and Judah are charges against God's people in any day and in any age. And as we consider them, the only proper response to a message of judgment is a response of repentance. Are you liars? Yes, you are. We tell ourselves lies to do what we want all the time. Do you oppress the poor? Absolutely. And do you silence the word of God? Yes, you do. Right? Which is why we come to this table, both lamenting our sin and repenting of it, but realizing that God redeems us in Jesus Christ the one who did live perfectly and avoided all such sin. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, your abundant grace to us. We thank you for Jesus who has succeeded where we have failed. As we approach your table this morning, we confess our sins to you. We confess that we are liars. We confess that we are syncretistic and adopt practices from our culture that undermine our worship. We confess, Father, that we oppress the poor, and that we would silence your word where it convicts. Would you forgive us for our foolishness? And would you help us to live as those freed from uh, that which besets us, to be liberated by the blood of Jesus and to know true freedom in him, freedom to obey. We pray that you would nourish us toward that at your table this morning. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.